Get to the church, blind! Get to the church, blind! Go! Now! I'm Pete Mitchell, and he's Peyton Jones, and you're listening to Hardcore Church Planning, the companion podcast for the Church Planner Podcast and Church Planner Magazine. Each week, we'll bring you interviews from planners who are in the trenches making it happen right now. These active church planners bear it all, share their successes, their failures, and what they'd wish they'd known when they were first starting out. Listen in to discover how God is working in their church plan. Hey, church planner, this is Pete Mitchell. And this is Peyton Jones. And you're listening to Hardcore Church Planting Podcast. Can we make it a little bit longer in the title? Just kind of curious there. Hardcore. Hardcore Church Planting Podcast? Yeah, that's kind of, that's a mouthful. That's all I'm saying. Can make it the Hardcore mm. Church Planting Podcast. Love it. Well, uh, Peyton, why don't you go ahead and introduce our guest before he hangs up on us and goes on to his next more important interview. So we have Mike, and Mike, I should have asked you this. Is it Mike McCargy? That's a pretty common pronunciation, sure. I'm um, sorry. <laughs> I knew I was at Mike McCargy. Another really common one. <laughs> so I, and if, unless people specifically ask, I typically don't correct the pronunciation because there Mike are so Mc... many variations. I, let me try a third time. Third time's a charm. I'm going to go like kind of like the like fake French route here and say Mark McCarqua. <laughs> that one I've never heard. That's incredible. Welcome to uh, the podcast. <laughs> yeah. Pleasure to be here. Also, also known as Science Mike, uh, famously, and I was visiting another podcast once upon a time, and I heard them talking about how they had just had Science Mike on, and they were raving about it. But, but also <laughs> Mike hosts, and I was like, man, I want to hear Science Mike. He sounds cool. So we've got Science Mike on here. He is the author of the new book, Finding God in the Waves. How I Lost My Faith and Found It Again Through Science, a phenomenally fantastic book, number one. And number two, you also have your own podcast called The Liturgist. So welcome to the show, man. It's an honor to be here. Thanks for having me. So before we get going any further, how do you say your last name? Mick Harg. Oh, the silent UE trick. I see what you're yeah. doing there. <laughs> it's a real weird name. It's not even common in Scotland. Um, so... Nobody anywhere can really pronounce it. Yeah, yeah. And and it is Scottish. It's not Irish. It is Scottish. Wow. All right. Ah. Cool. Well, the, well. the weird thing about the McCargs is it, all the way back BC, uh, it appears that they are true Scotch Irish <laughs> based on genetic nice. testing. Nice. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, it, the, the name is a, is a, the name and the DNA and all that is a, a unwilling or unnecessary amalgamation of those two cultures, even when they've been mutually hostile. Heck That's, yeah, yeah. All the Celts fight each other, but uh, I lived in Wales for 12 years, so they're they're kind of like the forgotten child in between those co two countries. But you can have the silent UE in Scotland. You just Your clan just can't have like the invisible kilt. That causes all kinds of problems. I see. Makes sense. I, I would just like to point out that a little uh, Scotch Irish mix that means you're uh, a know-it-all and really cheap. So that's a good combo. I like it. Oh yeah, I like it. I well, feel like good. you're reading my mail right now. 
<laughs> we should I'm actually get it all, and I am really cheap. I mean, both of those are true facts. <laughs> we should actually get awesome. into the podcast before uh, we lose people. This, the, after all, this is the and, hardcore. And, and Mike, uh, we might lose Mike. Mike true. just might hang up now and be done with us. So yeah, let, <laughs> let's get on the road here. So, uh, so Mike, here's the first question we always like to ask all of our guests. Tell us your story of how you came to faith, and uh, then I think the longer version is how you lost your faith, and then how you came back again. Okay, so uh, I'll see you in 45 minutes. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> Do that whole thing. That's quite a... Uh... You, you can't ask them all three at once, Pete. Come on. How, how did you come to faith, Mike? That can be the short one, then we'll get into the nitty-gritty. Good old-fashioned Southern Baptist, made a profession of faith when I was seven, was baptized when I was seven, and felt like I had a very personal knowledge of and relationship with God through Jesus, like full-on evangelical. Okay, and then what happened? Like, where did it all go wrong? I've read the book, so I know the answer to this, but uh, tell tell us your journey, man. How how did you lose your faith? Uh, Reading the Bible, definitely. Did it? <laughs> I mean, I'm All joking, right. but I'm not joking. It was um, my dad had, was the minister of music in our church, and he was a deacon in the church. I was a deacon in the church, and he had an affair and decided to leave my mom. And so I went to the Bible to find answers to this dilemma, and in the Bible I found questions and contradictions and ideas about God's morality that terrified me and started me down a process of examination, which I meant as a form of seeking closeness with God, by the way. It was never like a cynical, you know, analysis. I wasn't attacking God. I trusted God and prayed to God through the entire process. But piece by piece, my faith fell apart until there was nothing left. And I realized that I was an atheist. Mm. Mm. You know, it's funny because as I read your book, it was, I mean, it was, it was a painful read. And I think the reason it was a painful read was that, you know, a lot of your experience, it came through pain and, and being hurt and being, feeling let down by God. And, uh, you know, for, for me, my story is the way I got into church planning was I quit ministry. I still believed in God, but I can honestly say that my faith was hanging by a thread at one point. I wasn't even sure if I believed stuff was real anymore. And, um, and I remember just kind of feeling like very, very similar to some of the things you described in the book, which was things like you weren't there for me when I needed you. And you started unpacking questions like, when were you ever there for me? And uh, and I think a lot of people, Mike, are maybe too scared to be as honest as even parts of the Bible itself, right? I mean, the Psalms and Job and these parts of the the, the Bible where you know guys go through what you go through, and they, you could say at times they might even be on the edge. Um, now you went over the edge, but. Uh, Kind of unpack for us a little bit, you know, if if you would. I know these are sensitive things, but there there was kind of a journey of pain that went through a lot of this. Oh yeah, it was it was extremely traumatic. I've always trusted God as being present in my life and having a plan for my life. 
Those were just basic assumptions. And so as I go through this process and um, all that starts to come into question, there was certainly a grief that went along with that. And there was a relational tension. And maybe worst of all, there was a sense of loneliness because a Southern Baptist Deacon Sunday school teacher can't really safely express doubts to others. Right. Yeah, that's so true. And my, my favorite story in the, in the book, I think, was you kind of keeping your atheism secret for two years. And, you know, you know, t- tell us a little bit. My, my favorite story. It, it all goes together, but is is how you kind of dealt with the dynamics dur- during this time where you're keeping it secret from everybody. Your mom, who's like this, you know, Christian mega giant, uh, your your wife and your daughter. So uh, tell us a little bit about how you dealt with those dynamics when it was secret and what your outlet was um, and, and how you kind of came clean finally. When you lose God. You don't forget everything you knew about your faith tradition. So atheists who used to be Christians know just as much about Christianity as Christians, maybe more. And when I realized I didn't believe in God anymore, I also realized I couldn't tell anyone without putting my whole life at risk. My marriage could suffer or fail. I could maybe be shunned from my family or my social community. Because it wasn't like someone could open the Bible and through apologetics lead me back to faith. I'd already considered most of those arguments very deeply. And so I just decided to pretend. And I was good at it. I actually was a really good atheist Sunday school teacher. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I led my oldest daughter to Christ as an atheist to keep up the act. And, And I thought that was best for her growing up in the South was better for her to have a Christian context to mm. socially fit in. Right. And um, it was still isolating and alienating and emotionally draining. So online, I would be more honest. Well, not more honest. I'd be completely honest about what I believed and felt on discussion forums with atheists, which was a place I found a lot of refuge and solace and a sense of acceptance among people I'd never met talking about a post-Christian, post-theistic world and what that would look like and how you find morality and ethics and meaning and purpose in a universe with no God. And I want to be clear, at first I I was a very depressed atheist (laughs) because I missed God and I missed my faith. But in times I I grieved that loss, I actually found great happiness and contentment in secularism. Um, And I didn't have any any desire to find my way back to God. Ultimately, what I started to desire was the ability to publicly be an atheist and to not have to pretend to be a Christian anymore. You mentioned something, Mike, and I and I want to come back to 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 when you kind of came clean with your family and and, and your wife and uh, amazing story. But um, I, I want to talk a little bit and just probe deeper on that. You 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 talked about that that deep sense of loss and loneliness. Um, what what was that? 
grief. You know, um, as a believer, I'd never felt as close to any person as I felt to God, ever. I felt closer to God than to my parents. I felt closer to God than I felt to my wife. I felt closer to God than I felt to my children. And suddenly realized that the whole time I'd been talking to myself, it went beyond feeling foolish. Mm. It felt like the loss of a loved one. It felt like a loss of myself in some ways. And if you could imagine finding out that a parent has died and not being able to tell anyone or talk to anyone about that, that's an extremely difficult place to be emotionally. Mm -hmm. I went through a very bleak depression. For a a short time, I even had suicidal thoughts. And by the way, uh, the statistics tell us that people who go through a faith transition like this are at an elevated risk of attempting suicide. So it's it's hard to understand if you've never been there. But to go from being a truly devout believer who is satisfied in God, content in faith, to being um, a skeptic or an atheist, it, there's an incredible amount of trauma involved. It's not a, a just an intellectual exercise. It's a it's a little bit like a death. Yeah. Yeah, and 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 that's what it felt like to you. It felt like God had died, and it brought these feelings from from what you communicate in the book. It brings these these feelings of loneliness, and then at the same time, you know, your heart was. Um, I really appreciated in the book where you weren't you weren't bashing um, Christians in the book. You know, although I mean, there's plenty to bash, right? Like, you know, <laughs> just watch The Simpsons. But but the the fact is you were um, you, you were at the same time trying not to destroy anyone else's faith. You're like, hey, you know, I think it's beautiful you have that, and um, but I I just don't anymore. And so you had kept this secret from your wife. Tell us a little bit about you know how you broke it to your wife. How did how did that come about? Because you were you were really concerned about her finding out that you were an atheist and you're carrying this burden for like two years. How did that go down? Well, I wouldn't say I broke it to her as much as she broke it out of me. (laughs) (laughs) She knew something was up. She knew something was up and I don't know what she suspected, but she suspected something. I don't know if she suspected maybe marital infidelity or a hidden money problem or some more typical relationship strain but she could tell something was going on and um she just asked me what was wrong one night while we were watching tv and i said there's what are you talking about? there's nothing wrong with me she said no i can tell something is wrong what is wrong with you and i said no there is nothing wrong and she said is it me and like her eyes kind of shimmered with tears and it just broke my heart, and I didn't want her to think it was her. So I said, no, it's not you. And then, like, a switch, she got really serious and said, well, then it's something. So <laughs> she kind of tricked me into uh, letting my guard down <laughs> very successfully. And so I told her, you know, it's just it's not a big deal. I just don't believe in God anymore. And I don't think I could have said anything that shocked her so much. Hmm. And she told me I should just get right <laughs> in a very Southern woman way with a snap at the end. 
uh, and started to take me through the Roman road, which is a evangelical way of presenting the gospel and made a defense of God. And I remember feeling really proud of her, you know, watching her try to express her faith in this way, which wasn't something she usually did, but also very sad that I knew she wouldn't be able to convince me. And, uh, that really tested our marriage. Like nothing before had, we'd always been happy together. We'd always been able to resolve conflict, but here at the end of the discussion, I didn't believe in God and she did. And I was afraid to be too honest about why I didn't believe. I didn't want to send her down her own road of doubt and deconstruction and potentially a loss of faith. So I was very guarded and she would try to get me to let my guard down. And every time I did, I was obviously telling her new ideas and new critiques about God that she'd never heard before, which by the way, was something I was afraid to do even in the book because I know some Christians will read Finding God in the Waves and be presented with arguments against the faith that they've never seen before. And because I value faith so much, even if I was still an atheist, I wouldn't want to be a popularizer of critiques against religion because I value it so much. Um, But ultimately what I've learned is we have to be honest because if we're not honest, other people going through that experience feel as alone as I did. And so ultimately, I had to be truthful with, with Jenny about why I didn't believe as much as I had to, to be truthful with the entire world. Hmm. Mike, a question That's, that I got for you is, in your, in your journey back, would you say that you you were on a journey back or was it literally like God just snatched you back? Like, Because I'm really curious now hearing, um, you know, coming from such a strong position of faith to this, you know, idea of it was all fake and, you know, I was just talking to myself. I mean, how do you come back from that? I mean, was it God just literally snatching you back or, or were you actively seeking to come back. I was not seeking to come back at all. I was comfortably unreligious. Hmm. However, I would, I'd probably call myself on that journey back right now. And I expect to be on that journey for the rest of my life. I'm not sure I'll ever get to a point where I feel like I have God and following Jesus figured out again. Hmm. Um, but I, I had a something scientists call a mystical experience where I, I felt like I was in the presence of God in an extremely powerful way. Mm. I saw light. I felt warmth. I felt God's love for me and for all of humanity. And it was overwhelming and overpowering and completely alien to someone who is an atheist. So after that experience, I thought I probably had a brain tumor. <laughs> and uh, I asked a, I asked my neurologist for a CAT scan. And I got a CAT scan. <laughs> and when the CAT Sorry, scan... Sorry, Mike. Did, I know it's not funny. It is hilarious. It is hilarious. <laughs> you know, God God moves in this powerful way in my life. And I'm like, oh, he has a brain tumor. So no brain tumor. So then I saw uh, a, a psychologist and asked for a full battery of 
of tests because I was having hallucinations. So of course, she first asked me to describe the hallucination, and I did. And she said, it's not a classical hallucination. That's a religious experience. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> but I still demanded the tests. And as far as modern psychology can tell, I'm not obviously mentally ill, which is obviously a critique on modern psychology because uh, I am obviously mentally ill. But, um, you know, there's uh, there's a turning point you face after an experience like that. And your skepticism leads some hypotheses that don't satisfy. So I started to look at the Bible again. I started to read theologians again. And <laughs> I reacted to it like sodium to water. It, it, it inflamed me without the skepticism to approach the scriptures. So in search of the, where that light came from, I ended up turning to cosmology and particle physics to find a God that creates and sustains. What, what I found there was beautiful and mysterious, but completely impersonal. And so to find how we experience God, how God reaches out to us, I ultimately had to study the human brain. It was only through that process that I'm still on of finding a rational, scientific justification for Christian faith and practice that I was ultimately able to lean into the great mystery that is our God. Hmm. Now, if you thought you heard a train just then, Mike, um, during the interview, you're probably still hallucinating. <laughs> it's amazing that you're able to hear my hallucinations so well. I used That's to be a psych trick. nurse. So this is my area of expertise. That That is true. But um, I have a train goes right by my house. <laughs> Normally I can anticipate it, but uh, all of our listeners know that train very well. But uh, you, you talked about neuro. Uh, what was fascinating, Mike, is you come to um, neurotheology is what you call it. I mean, literally, Mike, I could talk to you for hours. There was so much you unpack in this book. Um, truly, I will say this. You are a phenomenal writer. Did you really write your book? <laughs> I really wrote my book. I worked super hard on it. I can um, tell. It, it was the word crafting. You can tell a story. I mean, guys, look, you're hearing just the tip of the iceberg about Mike's thoughts and stories. It is so well done. I would, I would recommend you pick this book up. But here's, here's the deal. You talk about neurotheology. And, I mean, you talked about so many things. For example, one of my favorite things you mentioned in there is you go back to the, to the beginning of the universe. You mentioned cosmology. You talk about how the universe as we know it, uh, it's, you know, speculated because it's expanding that at one time it was smaller than a sugar cube. You talk about singularity and you go, I don't know how to explain that, but that's as fantastical as anything I read in the Bible. And yet most of us accept this fact. And, you know, it, it, it's amazing just the perspectives that you give. But when you go into what you term neurotheology, um, what do you mean by that? And unpack that a little bit for us. Neurotheology is like the most fascinating thing I've ever discovered. I didn't come up with the term. It, it's a, some neuroscientists came up with the term neurotheology. And if you're coming in a Christian context, the word theology may throw you off because theology is the study of God. And neurotheology is not the study of God. It's the study of what God does or specifically belief in God does to human brains. So it's, it's incredibly pragmatic in its approach. 
It does not even try to answer the question of God's existence. It merely examines what different beliefs do to human brains and therefore to human behavior. And it's a completely fascinating field of study for believers and skeptics alike because it helps answer some of the questions about how religion shapes people's behaviors for good and for bad. So, uh, you know, you, you mentioned, for example, um, and this was fascinating to me. I don't know if this is quite the spin you put on it, but any good book's going to stimulate you to, to more thinking. Now I, I mentioned to you that you and I share one common thing here. We're both geeks. Um, but I did point out you're a smart geek and I'm a stupid geek. So, I'm probably when we're going to talk about some of this stuff, get a little bit wrong, but you can clarify. So let me let me just kind of set the stage here. You mentioned that uh, there's one side of your brain that deals with and might be side or part. But one one side deals with the idea of an angry God and the other side of your brain deals with the idea of a loving God. Can you kind of expound on that a bit for our listeners? Yeah, there's there's basically two ways people approach God. Either they understand God as primarily loving or primarily wrathful. And that affects how the network in your brain that represents your understanding of God is structured. If you believe God is angry, you're going to see a lot of activity in your God network associated with the brain's amygdala, which is the part of our brain that coordinates fear and anger. And that has all kinds of effects on you. It increases your stress level, raises your blood pressure, makes you fearful of outsiders. It makes it difficult for you to forgive yourself and to forgive other people. Uh, really, we would class all of these as pretty negative developments. But it's not like completely bad. Uh, a belief in an angry God helps you foster impulse control, right? Because if you believe God could smite you, it's easier to leave the cookie in the cookie jar. And the loving God... Uh, is completely different in our brains. Instead of centering activity around the brain's amygdala, it involves a lot of activity in the brain's prefrontal cortex, which is the part of the brain that coordinates focus and concentration, and the anterior cingulate cortex, which most neuroscientists believe is responsible for our sense of compassion and empathy. And when people believe in that God and, and pray regularly to that God, they actually develop richer, thicker gray matter in those portions of the brain. This has incredible effects. It lowers blood pressure, it lowers stress, it increases the ability to forgive, it decreases fearfulness of outsiders, uh, it improves focus and concentration, possibly even memory, and it biases people towards a compassionate response and away from an angry response in a given stimulus. People who believe in a loving God are actually changed into being more loving people than they were before. Mike, that, that's really fascinating. Sorry, sorry, real quick, Pete. Um, on on the tail end of that, um, it, it, one of the things that I mentioned was uh, you you may not have gone there, but as I started thinking about that whole principle, I started kind of wondering if if God is the God of the Bible that we know, we often hear people pit the Old Testament against the New Testament. And coming away from your book, just taking that understanding and research, I just wondered, uh, 
you know, it, it seems almost as if, if God is speaking in these two books to us, that one of his, it's almost like he's approaching that, that first part or, or the writers are approaching that first in a, in a very, um, limited, we, we believe in something called, uh, divine revel, uh, progressive revelation where, and, and I don't know how you understand it, Mike. I, you know, I don't know where you've come to in, in, in your journey, reading your book, you do not stitch everything up as a happy ending. <laughs> hey, I, I, you know, I, I'm like Job, I received way more than I lost, you know? Um, and, and so I know, as you said, you're still on this journey, but it just really made me kind of appreciate, you know, that argument. Cause often people say, well, the old Testament, God seems really angry. The new Testament, God seems really happy. And, and just kind of looking at neurotheology, I'm like, you know what? But those are parts of our, it's how our brain relates to God. Like there's actually these two ways we do relate to him. And I just wondered coming away from that, if there was kind of a, uh, maybe a takeaway from that research. Well, I think certainly the angry God is the oldest God humanity has ever understood. And that a loving God is a more historically recent development. I think you certainly see a reflection of divine love in the Old Testament. Um, I think often, especially in the later prophets, God's anger comes from a well of compassion. That God is angered over injustice. That the people not only turn against the commandments, but in doing so, um, turn against caring for each other. And turn against a, a godliness that's expressed in community. And in the New Testament, we see a God who, who definitely speaks of and models forgiveness. But we still see a, a frustration or an anger on God's part um, at, at, at what humanity does. And I think love and anger aren't always distinct. We have a, we have a tendency, I certainly have a tendency, to demonize anger. Uh, in all contexts, but if I was walking outside and a stranger walked up and striked one of my daughters, I, I hope I would get angry. To not get angry in that context would actually be a lack of love and not, um, you know, a, a sign of unlove. And when I look at the Bible's arc, I, I do believe that we continue to understand God in new ways because cultural contexts change. Uh, you know, the Enlightenment is a pretty different way of viewing the world than the way the world was viewed in biblical times. And I think God continues to meet people where we are so that we can understand and serve God and so that we can we can do this work that Jesus was constantly describing of bringing the kingdom of heaven near. Mm. Uh, but, it, you know, that said, I don't have a view of the Bible at this point in my life, that is tied up in a, a bow that's tidy, or a view yeah. of most things in Christian theology. I, I'm certainly deeper into sacramentalism and Trinitarian theology than I ever was as an evangelical, but I also know immediately the places where that theology fails to connect with what I observe in the world, and I just sort I embody that, um, because when I read, especially the Gospels, I see the followers of Christ often being confused about the most fundamental attributes of what the work of Jesus was about, mm. but they followed regardless yeah. and they trusted regardless. And more than ever in my life, my faith today and the way I read the Bible 
stems from a simple trust and not a sense of mastery. It's, it's powerful that you've, that you've said that because I have someone very close to me who is a, has taken your journey, um, almost word for word. I felt like I was reading this person's story. And I think you relate to a ton of people out there who have no one to relate to. And what's interesting is this atheist will say to me often, you Christians, you want to try to prove God with science. You want to try to prove God with archaeology. You want it, and he goes, and what you don't realize is your strongest argument, the one that the Bible gives you, is faith. And, and you've cheapened your strongest argument by not realizing how powerful that is. And, of course, here's your story, which, you know, it becomes really an embodiment, as you said, about embracing what you couldn't understand, this mysterious encounter with God, when your brain railed against everything to do with that kind of thing. And yet, you know, Mike, I mean, thank you for being honest. Let me just say that. I know we're running out of time, but, you know, church planners, our audience can take this because for church planners, they don't live inside of the Christian bubble. In fact, the whole reason they're church planners is they're outside of that bubble. They're talking with atheists all the time, and they have learned to have conversations with people that don't believe the Bible, don't believe Christianity, maybe come to church, even embrace one aspect of Christianity, but still believe maybe all religions are the way to God. And and, and, and one of the things as church planners that, that we learn is kind of like the disciples, people on a journey. But what's interesting, Mike, is many people are very patient with people on that journey to Jesus, but don't know what to do with people like you. And I really appreciated, number one, your guts to put all this out there especially hearing your story, <laughs> how you're like, I get phone calls from my mom. <laughs> she heard an interview I gave, you know, and, and, and so what was funny is, you know, just hearing you be honest and Mike, I think there's a real strength in you sharing this because I came away from this book feeling more equipped, if anything, to just, you know, I, I think again, for church planners, we don't, we, we don't fear. Um, I would say the majority of us that have, that have been this in this game for a long time, we don't fear the hard questions anymore. We don't fear um, taking, you know, having someone throw us a book that might completely dismantle our, you know, cons our construct of, of how we think and our, our, our worldview because we're doing it all the time. And so, uh, not being as smart as you, <laughs> perhaps we're more <laughs> protected from some of these things. We do, probably don't understand half the arguments, but, but here's the reality is that, um, you know, I, I've always kind of held that if, if God's real and he's who he said he is, then he's going to be able to hold up and, and there is so much mystery in the Bible and so much of that. And, Shoot, man, I've, I've just appreciated, I think the longer you, you, you walk with the Lord, the more you appreciate that you may not have it all as figured out as you once did. Or as like Bono once said, I knew more then than I do now. You know, we can all go back to that time where everything was really simple. You know, uh, maybe a preacher told us something. We go, preacher said that, that's what I believe. 
And over time, uh, as we've grown in our faith, perhaps the mystery's grown, but also our faith has grown at the same time, that weird little paradox. But mm. Mike, it has been very cool to have you on. And Pete always likes to sign out uh, by asking our guests an important question. All right. So, Mike, here's the question. In your book, you mention Rob Bell and Donald Miller. Sorry, I can't even say that right. Donald Miller quite a bit. So the question is this. If you and Donald Miller were to get into a physical fist fight, who would win? Oh, Don would win easily. Really? Don is such a physical person. He's pretty rough and tumble. I've spent time with Don. Uh, and I am a classic nerd. It, it, it would be a very short, one-sided fight if if Don and I ever came to blows. But the yes. Scotch Irish, the Scots Irish, you're not doing this. Ginger's proud. Well, he would try. He would fight. He no, I would kick, fight. But he fight. I would fight with all my might and lose horribly. Yeah, <laughs> that's right, man. That's right. See, Pete, Pete, Pete would fight. He'd probably win. Pete's big. We figured Rob Bell would just kick your butt. That dude's massive, right? Very Isn't he tall. Huge? Very tall guy. Rob, yeah, I'm six two, and I I have to look up to Rob literally. Yeah, um, it's hard to imagine Rob fighting though. It's easier to imagine Don fighting than Rob. Uh, you never know though. He might be like King from the Kung Fu, where like he looks at you and goes, "I do not wish to fight you." And if you ever watch Kung Fu, as soon as Kane says that, like you've had it, man, you're toast. He's gonna kick the crap out of you, right? It, yeah, it, those are no the words question. you don't want to hear. Either one of those guys, I'm going down. Yeah. Okay, that's cool. That's very cool. And uh, a bonus question for you, um, Mike. Um, Hoarder Alliance. Wow, that's a really good question. (laughs) I knew it. I read your book. I read between the lines, and I knew it. (laughs) Probably Hoard. Yeah, Hoard. Yeah, see, I guess that. I guess that. And by the way, guys, that's an inside joke. Read the book. The book has been Finding God in the Waves. It is by Convergent Press. You can get it anywhere that fine Christian books are sold and non-Christian books, too, because this book is a book that you could hand to probably just about anybody, no matter where they're at. And, uh, you know, guys, for your your church planning, this just might be a link for someone to even relate to their doubts and yet give them some glimmers of faith. And uh, Mike, thanks again for being on the show. We appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me, guys. Wish you Arnold, sign us out. Remember, if you are called to church planting, go hardcore or go home. You've been listening to Hardcore Church Planting. Hardcore Church Planting has been brought to you by the Church Planner Podcast and the Church Planner Magazine, which is available in the App Store for both Apple and Android devices. If you like this episode, leave us a positive review. If you didn't like this episode, we'll be happy to give you your money back.